Let's return. If you have your Bible with you, let's return to Revelation chapter 12 as we continue our study of the book of Revelation. We looked at the first six verses of Revelation 12 last week, but we'll read that passage, those first six verses again, and then we'll add verses 7 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness and to the place where she was to be nourished for a time, in times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Christ. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Before we look at this powerful passage, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Oh, Father, 
bow before you. You've called us not only to be prophets taking your word, taking your Christ out into the world. That's what we've been doing this week. But you've also called us to be priests, to come and bow before you in prayer, bringing, Father, the world before you in prayer. This morning, we thank you for how you've answered our prayers as your priests. Father, people have been healed. You know that. You know them by name. Marriages have been healed. We've been helped in a great way in these last few months, and we thank you. We pray again for College Hill. We pray that, Father, you would bring comfort to that church. But, Father, we pray that you would bring a vision now to that church. Bless them in the power of your spirit. To raise up a new congregation, a greater congregation, a building that will suit their worship. Bless them, Father. We pray for Alan Cachet, Father, that you would bless him in his ministry in France. We pray that indeed there would be a Huguenot revival there, that you would bring it home. Our Father, this morning we pray for John and Kaki Cruz. We thank you for the strength that you have given him. Father, we ask for him that you would keep him from any pain, cause Kaki and his children to be a powerful blessing to him. I pray that, Father, he would look back in thanksgiving and he would look forward with anticipation, cause him to be as undaunted as ever in his spirit. Our Father, we pray for his daughter, Kate, that you would bring healing. It seems impossible, but Father, nothing is impossible with you. And as these treatments have started, we pray that they would radically change the prognosis and that you would bring healing. Bless John Morrison to be a comfort. Bless Kate's children to be a comfort to her. Now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that in these next few minutes that we would hear you speak, that we hear you bring your word and your Christ to our hearts. John Sartell cannot preach that way. And so we pray that you would teach us. We're simply your children, Father, saying, tell us the story. Tell us a story from the beginning to the end. When we leave here, we pray that we would know that you have spoken. We have heard you. In Jesus' name, amen.
How does the Christian conquer this transcendent evil one? Now we're going to take a brief review in the last week. You know, when our children were little, before they could talk, before they could understand, we began to introduce them to the children's catechism. The children's catechism, the first two questions, I just love. The first question is, who made you? God. Second question, what else did God make? God made all things. All things. We just ingrained that from the earlier days, earliest days. I could look at Jill or John or Jamie when they were little, when they were barely able to talk. Who made you? God. Who made the bird? God. Who made the car? God. God made everything. Now, later, I could walk into the house, and there would be a cake sitting on the counter. And I would look at one of the children and say, who made that cake? Now, as they got older, they might say, oh, Dad, you know, Mom made the cake. Or they could say, even then, God did that. God did it. Now, when they said mom made the cake, that's the truth. That is the truth. It's a true answer. And if they said God made the cake, that's a true answer. God did it. But which answer was more fundamental? Which answer was more foundational? It's always God is the foundational answer. Well, in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, God, we saw last week, was pulling back the veil and showing what was happening behind the scenes. You know the birth story of Jesus Christ. But there in those first six verses, he's showing us a dramatic scene that is taking place behind what we see. Satan is pictured in chapter 12 as a seven-headed dragon. Now, this is symbolic language. That's a symbolic picture. In reality, we read in other places of scripture, in scripture that Satan was beautiful to the sight. He was a powerful figure. But here is this hideous monster. And each characteristic of this monster is symbolic. He has seven heads. In the stories of that day, a multi-headed monster was one that was indestructible. Why? Because if you cut off one head, there was another head. You cut off that head, there's another head. So someone reading this in that day said, he's indestructible. 
That's what it symbolizes. Each head had a crown and a diadem on it, which means that this dragon had authority. It ruled. He had ten horns. In Scripture, horns always symbolize power. This dragon didn't have three or four horns. He had ten horns. His power is transcendent. That's the message. Now, we saw last week that since creation, he had been there trying to thwart, trying to obstruct the plan of God. He had a great victory in the garden as he seduced Adam and Eve. And then God said, Satan, a descendant of Eve will crush your head. Well, with that, Satan inspired one of Eve's children, Cain, to kill his brother, the godly Abel. Satan was saying, no son of Eve is going to crush my head. I'll crush him. He inspired the paranoid Saul to several times try to kill David. For the Messiah was to come from David's lineage. So in chapter 12, God pulls back the veil and shows us what was happening, what, what had happened in the Gospels. Here's what really happened. Here's what was going on at the incarnation. There was a dragon. And this woman who represents Israel, she is Israel. The people of God, the Messiah was to come from the people of God. All through the Old Testament, the people of God are going through birth pains to bring the Messiah into the world. She's Israel, and she's about to give birth to this long-awaited Messiah. And there's Satan standing right there. Give me the baby. Give me the baby. I'll devour. I'll eat this baby. When he discovered from the wise men that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem, he inspired the maniacal and paranoid Herod, kill all the babies under two years old in Bethlehem. So what happened? In verse 5, we read, but her child was caught up to God and he saw what happened between the woman, the baby, and the dragon. God swept the child up to glory. You see, John skips from the incarnation all the way to at the ascension. Why does he do that? Well, the first five verses are looking back. All this has already happened. His readers knew the story. He, they knew the story of Christ and what he had done. So he just skips to the end. Jesus is safe at home in glory. Satan could not thwart the plan of God. At the cross, he thought he had. He thought he had killed the Messiah. But Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, came from the grave and returned to glory. What happens to the woman? The people of God. She flees into the wilderness. That's significant, and it comes again at the end of the chapter, and we're going to use that next week to introduce chapter 13. But here the scene switches. We're back in heaven. This was taking place on earth. 
We're back in heaven. There's a war in heaven. Satan and his angels are warring with Michael, an archangel, and his fellow angels. And Satan is thrown down from heaven. Now stop for a minute. When I was, when I was young and first heard this, my first question to my father was, what's Satan doing in heaven? It's a good question. How can this evil character be in the vicinity of God? Well, two words are used to describe this evil one in chapter 12. The Greek word for Satan, it means adversary, enemy. And then the Greek word for devil, diabolos, from which we get our word diabolical. Diabolos meant accuser, the accuser. We're going to see it all through scripture this morning. Before the incarnation, before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ascension, Satan always seems to be hanging around God and his angels. In Job, we read about it. Look at your scripture sheet at Job 1, verses 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God points to the God godliness of Job. He says he pursues righteousness. He turns from evil. And look what Satan, the devil, the accuser respond, ha, he mocks God. You've coddled him, God. You've given him farms and livestock and crops and wealth and family. No wonder he thinks good about you. God, take away his farms, his livestock, his crops. Take away his wealth. Take away his family. God, he'll curse you to your face. You see the accuser? That's what he was always doing. Think about what he would have said about David. David, you said, or God, you said David was a man after your own heart. He shacked up with Bathsheba. Look at this. He could also accuse God and did accuse God of saying, where's your holiness, God? I thought you were just. You have these people that you call your people, and they're walking around sinning on every side. Their sins hadn't been atoned. You hadn't called them into your courtroom. Where's your justice, God? Where's your justice? You know that those animals on the altar don't take away their sin. Where's your justice? Well, here, now, finally, Satan and his angels are thrown from heaven. He can no longer accuse. He's thrown from the courtroom of God. Why? You see, you tend to look at this and say, well, you know, finally Michael was strong enough. Michael could have thrown him out of heaven a thousand years earlier. 
God could have said a word and Satan would have disappeared. What was the ground? What was the basis for Satan's defeat? Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation. Now look at this. Don't treat it just like a scripture. Just glance over it. Look at it. Look at the details. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. It's here. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. What was he saying? Salvation has come. That's what he said. Power has come. The kingdom has come. The authority of his Christ has come. The incarnation happened. The atoning cross happened. The blood of the Lamb happened. The resurrection happened. Redemption happened. The justice of God was satisfied. The sins of God's people were atoned. The ascension happened. That's what that verse is saying. All of that. Satan could no, no longer accuse the sinner. Now there's a marvelous, marvelous prophecy about this in the Old Testament. One of the prophets talked about it, and we're going to read it. It's beautiful. Look at it, Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now don't skip over that. It's important. This is the high priest. He's dressed in priestly, high priestly robes. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has been chosen, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Is not this high priest a brand plucked from the fires of hell? The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments. Even in his, even in the high priest, the great high priestly garb, he was filthy. And to him, he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away, Joshua, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This was a prophecy of what would happen and what would come to pass through Christ. Joshua was being dressed in the blood of the Lamb. Satan could no longer accuse God's people. Here was even the high priest clothed in his high priest robes. Filthy. He was covered with iniquity. That's what those verses say. He could not only not accuse God's people, but God's justice had been satisfied. You know how huge this is? Paul, the great legal mind, the great lawyer, the New Testament apostle, two of the greatest, three of the greatest verses in all the Bible. Romans 3, 24 through 26. If you don't look at anything else, look at this. This is huge. Ponder it. For the next five years, you might, well, you're never going to fathom the depth of it. And all are justified. That word justified, there's a Greek word meaning declared innocent. All are declared innocent, freely by his grace, 
How could they be declared innocent? They're sinners. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How did redemption come through Christ Jesus? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice. He's giving Satan an answer. Satan, you want my righteousness? Here it is. You want my justice? Here it is. Because in forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. Satan, you've asked the questions for a thousand years. Where's my justice? Well, here it is. And I am just. Satan, the accuser, had lost his foothold in heaven. He could no longer accuse. He was cast down to the earth. And what was happening? Heaven was praising God. Heaven was celebrating victory. But at the, in the very same verse, a great woe is pronounced because Satan has been thrown down to the earth and he's there with a transcendent wrath. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice! There's a party in heaven. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Folks, Satan is ticked. He's filled with rage. He knows he's been defeated. He knows his time is short. He failed to kill the Messiah. When evil knows it's been beaten, when evil knows its time is short, there's never repentance. Just look at the history of the world. Look at the great despots and tyrants. When they knew they were beaten, they did their worst work. I'll take as many as I can with me. In chapter 12, in these two scenes, Jesus is explaining the hatred of Satan for the people of God. When the chapter began, and all through the Old Testament, Satan is focused on stopping the Messiah, killing the Messiah, not letting this Messiah get here, and once he got here, killing him. God had used the very Roman cross on which Jesus died. A cross Satan had inspired through Judas and the Sanhedrin. God used Satan's own efforts and turned that cruel cross into an atoning sacrifice. But his focus had been on the Messiah. Give me the baby. Give me the baby. I'll destroy him. No son of Eve is going to crush my head. And then what happens? The focus changes. The accuser's throne can no longer accuse God of being unholy and just. He can no longer accuse God's people. Jesus himself has died for their sin. So what happens? Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. You want to know what's happening today? We're at war. To make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God 
and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This chapter, as well as chapter 13, shows the hatred of Satan for Christ and then shows the hatred of Satan for his people. These two chapters show us the transcendent power of Satan. Now I ask you this morning, what can you do? What can you do against such an enemy? What can you do against such a transcendent enemy? With all those heads, all those crowns, all those horns. How can we deal with this transcendent creature? If he could shred, if he could shred Christ's covenant church, he would. How can we stand against him? Go back to verses 10 and 11 because God tells us, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they've conquered him, conquered this transcendent one by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. How do we defeat Satan? How does John Sartell, how do you, how do we defeat Satan? How do we defeat him as Christ's covenant church? First, they defeated him by the blood of the lamb. He continues to accuse us. He can't accuse us before Christ on the throne, before in the judgment in the courtroom. That's been done. That's been handled. That's, that's over. He's lost. But he can come to us in our weaknesses and in our sins and say, how dare you claim to be a follower of Christ? Look at you. Sartell, what are you doing in that pulpit? I know you. I know your heart. If those people knew your heart and mind, they would say, John Sartell, what are you doing in the pulpit? That's what Satan says to me. What he says to you, what are you going to church for this morning? Pretending to be holy? You know all the sins of your heart. You know all the sins in your background. You know how you've been so angry with God sometimes, how you've lied, how you've stolen, how you've cheated. He knows what you've said to your wife, what you've imagined in your mind committing adultery. He knows what you've said to your husband. What do we say when Satan comes and says that? Most Christians think like this. They say, I'm saved by grace. I know in the beginning there that I was a sinner. I was lost. Jesus came. I saw Jesus. The Holy Spirit changed my heart. And that was grace. But after that, we make a transition. Most Christians think it all began with grace. God did it all. But if I'm going to remain saved... And they focus on their works. They become self-righteous in their works. I, I go to church. I'm baptized. I do this. I teach Sunday school. I do this or that. Look at me. What I do at, at work. 
Folks, self-righteousness is the bane of the Christian life. Our self-righteousness is a great weapon in the hand of the ancient accuser. When Satan comes and accuses us, the answer is not, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I go to church. That's not the answer. When he's accusing Joshua, the high priest, and Zechariah, did the angel say, hey, Satan, this is the high priest. He's not that bad. Did he say that? No, he didn't say that. He said, take off the filth. He said, his, he, said he was filthy. The angel did. Said he was filthy. The angel said, put new garments on him. Dress him in the blood of Christ. What does that tell you? When Satan comes to accuse and we say to him, I'm not that bad. When we try to justify our own righteousness by our own selves, we just hand him the weapon with which to kill us. You know what the answer to Satan is? Satan, you're accusing me of these things? You don't know the half of it. You really don't. I'm much worse than you say I am. Not, I'm so much better. I'm so much worse than you say I am. But I'm covered by the blood of Christ. That's the answer. We sang it a few weeks ago on Sunday morning at the end of our worship. That beautiful hymn. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Satan has no argument. That's it. It's done. You were saved by the blood of the Lamb. You are being saved by the blood of the Lamb and you will be saved by the blood of the Lamb. Remember when God sent a message through Moses to Israel? He said, I'll be passing through Egypt one last time. There'll be one last plague in my judgment on Pharaoh. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt is going to die. Moses told Israel, you must put the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost of your house. When you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, God will pass over it. He said he would. So Benjamin and his neighbor Judah run into each other before the evening of the Passover. And Benjamin asked his neighbor Judah, have you put the blood of the lamb on your doorposts? Oh, yes, yes. All these other plagues happened just as Moses said they would, and this will happen also. All those other plagues, they fell on Egypt. They didn't fall on Goshen. But this time he says he's coming through Goshen and Egypt, and we've got to put the blood on the door. And yes, I put the blood on my doorpost. It's there. What about you, Benjamin? Did you put the blood on the doorpost? Oh, yes, I did it this morning. But Judah, I I'm so scared. I'm so scared. You have four children. I only have one. I don't want him to die. I'm so afraid. 
What do you think all this means? So the angel of death passed through the land that evening. Which man lost his child? Judah or Benjamin? Neither. The blood of the lamb was on their doorposts. The effectiveness of the blood does not depend on the intensity or perfection of our faith. If it did, we would all be lost. They defeated him by the blood of the Lamb. When Satan comes to accuse, I'm under the blood of the cross. Secondly, they defeated him by the word of their testimony. Look at verse 11, and they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How did Jesus answer the temptation by Satan in the wilderness? How did he answer most of you already know this. Go back and read Matthew 4 this afternoon. Read the words of Jesus. How did Jesus answer Satan? He quoted Scripture. He didn't say anything but Scripture. That was it. Jesus, well, look, go to Revelation 10. Remember that angel, that angel, great angel standing there with that little scroll and the little scroll was the word of God? And the angel told John to take the scroll. It's the word of God. And he said, eat it. Ingest it. We talked about this, remember? That we're to ingest the word of God. To digest it into our system. And then what? Ingesting it, digesting it is not enough. He said, speak it, live it. Wow. The word of God is in us. There's a marvelous verse in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He spoke. You want to know where this huge universe came? God spoke. It came to be. That's the power of his word. We read in Hebrews 1, the very first verse long ago, God spoke to us, by, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The word became flesh. God was speaking through his own son. That's what he's calling us to do, to speak his word into Satan's domain. He's called us to be salt and light. Why did he use the word salt and light? Because Satan's kingdom is filled with putrefaction. It means rot. It's filled with rot. And salt retards the rot. That's what we're supposed to do. And there's darkness, immense darkness. We're to be light in the middle of that darkness. And who? Who is the salt? You are. I am. Christ's covenant is. And how are we salt? We speak and live God's word into the domain of Satan's kingdom. Who's the light? You are and I am. We're to be the light into this darkness, this immense darkness. Let me ask you this. How are you telling your children about Christ? How are you speaking? How are you living the word of God before your children, before your grandchildren? I bring them to church. Well, that's good. But God calls you to do far more than that. 
We're to speak the Word of God, to live the Word of God into their daily lives. Do they see you repent? Believe me, your children know about your sins. They really do. You knew about your parents' sins, didn't you? Yep. Do they see you repent? You know, I go through life and my children see my sin and they don't ever see repentance. What is that? It's not the gospel. How are you speaking the word of God into your neighbor's lives and living the word of God into your neighbors, into your the people with whom you work? How are you doing that? Here's a summary statement. Jesus has saved us by his blood and sent us into Satan's domain to speak and live the word of God in the gospel. How's that being done? That's what we're called to do. He said that's how we'll defeat Satan. We conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb. We conquer Satan by the word of our testimony. And when we do that, when we speak into his kingdom, I'll tell you, Satan is still filled with hate and rage. And he'll, you know what he's saying? I'll kill those suckers. I can stop that. So lastly, we conquer Satan by loving the blood of the Lamb and the Word of God more than we do our own lives, for they love not their lives even unto death. We think we live in a modern, civilized world that has existed, that has not existed previously. A civilized world that has never been like, the world's never been like this before. You know what? There's good news. There's good news about the kingdom of God, the people of God. You know that there's been more effective mission work. There's more, been more effective spreading the gospel in the last 150 years than there were in the previous 1900 years. That is a measurable record. That's been measured. It's true. Far more in the last 150 than in the previous 1900. However, that didn't make Satan any nicer. That didn't calm his rage. That enraged him. In the same 150 years, more people have died for their faith in Christ than in the previous 1900 years combined. Somehow we think we don't live in an age of martyrdom anymore. People. Take off your blinders. Somehow, and I don't know how, we've been sold the notion that the notion that the time of martyrdom was in the past. We don't need to worry about being persecuted and killed. Wake up. Look at the 20th century. Hitler in Germany, Lenin and Stalin in Marxist Russia, Mao Zedong in Marxist China, the Kim Dynasty in North Korea, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Idi Amin in Uganda. That's not a thousand years ago. It was just yesterday. These individuals and leaders and countries are responsible for the deaths of millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians. In this country, we've been spared. For 250 years, a Judeo-Christian ethic and world and life view was strong in our culture. Never were most of the population Christian. It wasn't that. But the world and life view, Judeo-Christian world and life view, dominated. 
In the last 75 years, the church has been marginalized. It's been pushed out to the edges. It's not in the center part of our culture. You know this. We've all felt the pressure. We've been pushed out into the edges. It's intimidating. God is no longer. I talked about this Thursday night with several of the young couples that attended a a gathering. God's no longer in our everyday conversation. Sports, politics, sex, gender, economics, media, music, pluralism, capitalism, socialism, race, sociology, psychology, abortion. Those are good issues to discuss. But try to find God in the middle of a 21st century conversation about any of those in your culture. You cannot find it. We talk about all those things without reverence to God. So who's going to put him into the conversation? We're supposed to live this, to speak this, to digest it and put it in. Who's going to do it? Is the world going to do it? Is Hollywood going to do it? Wall Street going to put that? Is the Senate or the Congress? Representatives, House right? Are they going to do it? Are they going to put it into the conversation? You know the answer to that. That's silly. God called his people to do it. He called us to do it at the cost of our lives as necessary. And he's being serious. And we think, oh, when it comes to that, John, I'll stand up. When it comes to that, I'll stand up and speak. When it comes to that, I'll speak boldly. Folks, if we don't do it in our ordinary days, if we don't do it when our lives are, say, calm, if we don't do it when our lives are not in danger, why in the world do you think we're going to stand when it will cost us our lives and our children's lives. There'll be no defeat of Satan until we come to that, until we realize Satan was enraged then and he's enraged now. And he's at war with the children of that great lady. How do we defeat him? By the blood of the Lamb. Speaking and living his word into Satan's kingdom and loving the blood and loving the gospel more than we do our own lives. Amen. Our hymn just affirms what we've said. Let's sing it. 690.